Amen. Hi, uh, lovely to see you all. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Tim. I'm Vicar here in uh, Whitcomb, looking after St. Matt's, and Vicar here in St. Tom's. Um, and never more, any other time in my ministry, have I felt the urging call to call down the fire of God. Um, so I'm really sorry. It's so chilly in here tonight, and uh, the heating—I say the heating is on—and uh, perhaps it's not on early enough, and it may well be a bit low powered. So we'll have a look at it. But in the Church of England, you have this thing called the peace don't you normally, where you turn to one another. And I say, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And you say... And then at that point, we turn and we greet one another and we shake hands. Um, uh, or, you know, we, we hold on to one another for, for warmth for a few minutes, which perhaps would be the thing that if we weren't in a COVID situation, we might want to do. Uh, at St. Matt's, we usually have this thing called Mingle Tea Tingle, where we turn and greet one another. I'm just really aware that in these kind of complicated days where we're still wearing masks because we want to protect those around who are vulnerable, thank you for, for, for wearing those, those of you that are able to. Um, it is hard to feel like family and community when you're trying to make sense of the ninjas around you and work out who these people are and kind of make contacts and friendships. So I'm aware of that. Hopefully, hopefully we're moving to less complicated days when we can begin to build community. Because that's what church is supposed to be all about. Uh, I kind of prayed that earlier because I really felt that God was wanting to reassure us and remind us of that. And I'm going to be speaking a bit about church tonight. And if we're reflecting on church, well, I want us to think about us, those of us here that have faith. I want to ask a question. Kind of people preaching often ask questions, rhetorical questions. I'm going to get you to really, really think about this. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? What are they for? <laughs> think about yourself. What, what do you think your purpose is? If you, if you have faith, if you are a Christian, what's your purpose? What is life all about? Maybe, maybe you've not got faith. That's fine. You're really welcome here tonight. And you might ask that question. Well, I wonder what my life is all about. What am I here for? I would like you and I know this is something we don't do lots and lots, but we're trying to do more about engaging. I'd love you to turn to the person next to you if you feel comfortable doing that. Uh, introduce yourself if you don't know them. And just answer that question. What do you think life is about? What, what's a Christian for? What is your purpose? That's a big question. And so I'm giving you two minutes to answer it. <laughs> Why don't you turn to the person next to you and reflect on that question. I'm not going to ask for you to give feedback. So this is just amongst yourselves. What do you think the point of being a Christian is? What, what might that look like? Probably... Oh, so I'll never get you to stop talking now, will I? Now I've got you started. The, tr- the truth is, if I went around the room, there probably would be loads of different thoughts, and you know, many of them would be really, really helpful. And we see things from different angles, and we think about our own lives, we think of our aspirations, we think about uh, generic cr- Christians and what that might mean. The actual word Christian, I'm sure many of you know, um, we're told in Acts 11.26, that's the first time the word Christian actually is used after Barnabas brings Paul to Antioch. Uh, and they're kind of, they taught and they, they kind of um, helped there for about a year. Uh, and it says in that text in verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And, and that word Christian kind of, you know, it's often translated as little Christ. Interestingly, it wasn't a name that they gave themselves. It was the name that people around them 
gave these disciples. Um, it was given to them by society, by the society around them, labelling them as little Christs, that they belonged to the Jesus party, this bunch of people who were just a little bit odd and had some interesting ideas and they lived differently from the rest of the Jewish culture and from the pagans and from all the other religions. This particular little group were so unique that they got this little name, named after the person who they followed, because they kind of sounded like him, and they looked like him, and they were like little Jesuses walking around. They were Christ followers, Christ imitators, Christ-like. It's not a bad thing to be labelled. Maybe now the word Christian has got other views in society, but at the time there was puzzlement, but there was a sense of intrigue about the whole thing. So do you think we're supposed to be living, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, people of faith, who follow Jesus, do you think we're supposed to be living, acting and walking like Jesus, like Christ? Do you think that's a fair thing to suggest that maybe we're supposed to? (laughs) You're worried, is this a trick question? (laughs) Yeah, uh, yes, there was some definite yes. I think we're supposed to be like Jesus then if that's true, I would suggest it's probably really helpful to see how Jesus saw himself doing the stuff. His manifesto, if you like. And Mark's going to come and read this to us from Luke 4. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. I I love this passage. I love this passage, which, of course, is taken from Isaiah 61. Here's Jesus back in his hometown. Everyone knows the little boy who grew up around here. You know, he used to do crazy things, and there were lots of stories about him, and who knows quite what miraculous signs followed him even as a child. But he was known there, and they knew him, and they knew he was a teacher, he was a rabbi, and they asked him to read, and he reads this passage. It's one of those moments in history I would have loved to have been there. He reads this passage. You can kind of almost feel the goose pimples in the moment because he rolls it up, sits down and says, today is fulfilled. 
Wow, what a moment. The, the Jewish nation have been waiting for, for this Messiah to come. And basically what he's saying, it, it's, it's me. It's in me. It's what I'm called for. And those who follow me, I love that passage, which says even greater things will they do. I love that passage when Jesus says that about us. What, what might that even begin to mean? Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He goes on to elaborate a little bit about the prophets never being recognised in their own town. Um, and, and actually, they get really offended because basically he's saying, you know, you, you're not going to recognise me as this here. You know, I'm, I'm just a little boy, the little kid who grew up playing in the streets around here. And, and actually, it gets really hairy. They, they, they become so offended at Jesus saying this that they kind of want they sort of drive him up towards this cliff that the town is built on and they want to throw this kid who they grew up with over the cliff and kill him. I mean, you think you've had bad days in church. This is pretty grim for Jesus, but he kind of, we don't quite know how, whether it's kind of supernatural or his authority, but he walks through the crowd because, of course, it wasn't his time for his death at this point. What Jesus was saying, which I guess they found so offensive, is that the promise that Isaiah gave this promise that he quotes about himself is that the promise that Isaiah gives is for those almost outside the broken hearted those that mourn those who are blind those who are held captive they're the people who are usually outside of the walls of the synagogue they're the ones on the outside they're the Gentiles they're the rest of the world they're the messed up ones they're the ones who aren't holy or clean or righteous or they're the ones who are lost and Jesus is saying they're the ones I'm here for, not the ones who think that they're fine, not the religious. I'm here for the unreached, the unloved, the unlovable. And God longs for them and intends them to come to know the work he's doing through this Jesus. They're so often the ones who actually recognise that they do need a saviour that they rec- and they recognise him when he comes amongst them. And we saw that, the crowds that follow Jesus it wasn't the religious leaders or the ruling elite. It was those who were lost and broken, sheep without a shepherd. And they saw the shepherd and they knew they needed him. The pious, the religious, those who think they're fine, that don't need a saviour, they don't need this gospel. Well, they wanted to destroy him. And so I would suggest radically perhaps that surely this must mean something significant for us as little Christs, as Jesus followers, as those who are called to be imitators of Christ. What are we here for? What is the church here for? If this, which Jesus just read out, is his mandate, his manifesto, then it has to be ours, right? I would suggest that it does, which raises all sorts of questions. And so we might think, well, okay, what does that actually look like? Um, Some of you will have heard me talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer before. He's a bit of a hero of mine, German Lutheran pastor, theologian, and actually a really fierce resistor um, and a thorn in the flesh of the Nazi war machine, actually, uh, and actually ended up being hanged by them um, in 1945. He wrote some incredible stuff. Um, And he was passionate about the church and the people of God and its voice. He spoke, you know, he wasn't afraid of speaking out against the Nazis. I mean, that's why eventually he was killed. He was passionate about the church finding its voice and understanding its call. 
And there's loads of amazing quotes that you can read, things that he said. One of the things he, he said is this. But the church is not, he's saying, is not just. The church is not just a religious community of worshippers of Christ. But it's Christ himself who has taken form amongst people. He's saying the church isn't just a bunch of people who happen to kind of believe in Jesus. The church is supposed to look like Jesus because he's taken such form amongst them that when people look at the church they go, wow, that's Jesus. Now, we kind of know that. But I would ask the question, is that our experience of church? Is that experience, the experience of people outside? Sadly, so often not. It's of judgmental people or closed doors or cliques or inaccessible service patterns or ways of being or language that exclude others and make a little kind of world for us that's really lovely but maybe inaccessible to so many. And let's not kid ourselves, it's all about being contemporary and new because we can be just as exclusive as a contemporary church as a church using ancient hymns and an organ. It's not about styles. It's actually about our hearts and about how we welcome the other. That's why I'm so thankful here in Whitcomb we can have a glorious service like this and we can have a glorious service at St Tom's where I look like a proper vicar and we have hymns and liturgy and both are to the glory of God and they're places where the, the, the stranger is welcomed. That's what it's supposed to be like. He also said this, and I really love this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. That's great, isn't it? What a great thought. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. They look at God and they think, well, when I look at you, I'm not sure that God doesn't exist because I see Jesus in you. They may not articulate it like that, but that's how it's supposed to be. I believe that's how Jesus has always intended it. There's such joy in being a witness to God's love, compassion and concern. We as church have seen this in action so much. We've seen people know people. Indeed, in this place are people who have been transformed by this incarnate God, transformed by meeting this Jesus. That would be our story. Many of the things Jesus spoke about. You know my story, being set free, being liberated, being delivered, experiencing that. And that will be true for so many I know here. Liberated, healed, delivered, transformed. It's our story. And our stories are really powerful. And we need to share our stories more. The church needs to find its voice in these days, like Mark said, where there's so little hope. This place is so full of hope. When I hear your stories and when I see what God's doing in your lives, in the massive things and in the day-by-day beautiful little things. So we come together as church, rightly therefore, like tonight, thanks to Joel and the band who are leading us tonight. As Psalm 19 says, we heard, along with all the heavens, it's right, therefore, that we declare the glory of God and proclaim the work of his hands. To praise God. To feed off the hope, the peace and the joy that we've experienced and to grow in faith. That's really important that we do that together as church. But is that what church is mainly supposed to be about? A gathered celebration? A place of renewal, fellowship and discipleship? And then we all go home having had a great time? Predominantly it's become that. Well, I can't always guarantee you've had a good time. Let's be honest, many a times we've gone to church and we haven't always had a good time and then we've gone home. But is that what church has been boiled down to? This thing that we come to? 
an event, a service. I don't think that's what Jesus ever intended. I think in these days across the nation, across the nations of this world, I meet with so many church leaders of so many streams and styles and denominations, not just in the city, but across the southwest and further afield, and and indeed in other nations as well. And almost uniformly I hear people saying, sensing, those that have ears to hear, that the Spirit of God is seeking to do something fresh, to reaffirm and burn into hearts that the, the fact that the church is the only institution that actually exists for those who are not yet part of it. That's what we're supposed to be here for. For those who aren't part of it. That's why we're here. We're not just here for ourselves, but actually we're here for Whitcomb, for the city, for the nation. And you'll be pleased to know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a view on this. He said this, he put it this way. The church is, the, is only the church when it exists for others. The church is only the church when it exists for others. When I look at Jesus' life, he existed for others, didn't he? His whole mandate, his whole manifesto is the broken, the lost, the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable. Those who need to hear good news of God's favour for them. The ones that believe God's a a mighty smiter and wants to mightily smite them and hate them because they've been so sinful. No, says Jesus, you need to understand about the year of the Lord's favour. His mercy is never never ending. God of endless loving kindness, a God of mercy and grace. Yes, a God of judgment, but who through the cross can bring redemption. Jesus is saying, the church, my body is for the world. It's good news. Bonhoeffer saying that questions the identity of the church who the church exists for and why, saying what's the church here why does it exist, who's it for well it's for everyone out there that knows nothing about faith the church can only call itself the church if its focus is outward not inward but in his next sentence he goes on to qualify that statement with a sentence that makes most church leaders probably feel deeply uncomfortable. He says this, The church is only the church when it exists for others. To make a start, it should give away all its property to those in need. Whoa, hang on a minute. (laughs) I mean, I'm happy to kind of love people outside the church, but give away everything? I mean, that's beginning to sound a bit fanatical. That's a bit mad, isn't it? If the church did that, you know, where, where would we meet? How would we do church services? Um, how do we run kids' work? How would we do coffee mornings and food banks? And you know, how do we give to the next people that come around the corner if we've already given everything away? Or what if they use it badly or misuse it or abuse it? If we've given it away, you know, it seems too extreme, too extravagant, too sacrificial, too painful, too costly. And then I begin to remember Christ and Isaiah 61. And his call, his extreme, extravagant, sacrificial, painful, costly yielding of self, his body, surrendered and sacrificed. And then I remember that the church is his body, surely to be given to the world in the same way. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, together you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is part of that body. So here we see Jesus surrendering his body. Giving his body for the sake of the world. 
And if we are therefore the body of Christ, then that same spirit should be in us to just give ourselves away and all that we have. We've got the second biggest church worship space in the city after the Abbey. It's a barn of a place. Those of you who are sitting here with frostbite tonight will recognise that. It takes a good 15 hours to heat the building. Not usually that long, but... You know, this was built for 1,200 people, this church. I'm thankful to the Victorians, but there's probably more people in it now than there ever has been, you know, from the Victorian age. It was a barn of a place. What's this for? Is it as a monument to some people who gave it some money? You know, am I going to put a plaque up when I eventually kind of hand in my chips as vicar and Tim Buckley was here? Is that what it's about? No, I don't think so. I believe this place is a gift for the city and beyond. I want to give it away. It's not my building. I don't think it's our building. In, that, in one sense, it's God's building. And What can we give for his cause, for what God wants. I think Jesus and the Bible always wants us to get to the heart of the matter. Maybe it's not as simple as simply selling everything and giving all the money away. More often the heart of the matter is actually all about the heart. My heart, your heart, the heartbeat of what it means to be church. Maybe the real heart issue is that it might mean that the buildings we have St. Matt's, St. Tom's, our resources, our PA equipment, finances, things that we own, things that we steward, the resources that we have, the people that we have, being given so graciously by God as stewards need to be fully accessible, fully offered, fully surrendered to those around us. Not simply here for us to enjoy, although we do enjoy them, but rather freely, lavishly and extravagantly given away to a world needing to encounter a saviour. I wonder what that looks like. I'm beginning to get ideas. I'm beginning to talk to people and think, how can we, how can we start giving some of this stuff away and partnering with those outside of this place? I believe that God is calling us and calling the church to increasingly look beyond its own needs and desires and wants to trust God for more and to be able to give away when I look at our church and the church that we're part of I'm so thankful for all that we have all that I see all that you are all that we see amongst us it's incredible it's such a blessing but you know every now and then I'm shaken I was shaken a little while ago I went to do a funeral up at Haycombe as often I, I, I get the privilege of doing them and I love, it sounds strange, I love doing funerals. I love speaking into families often where there's such pain and loss and grief, understandably. And in one sense, if I can be a vessel of hope and love, bringing Jesus, Jesus wants to meet with those families. Jesus wants to encounter those families, to speak of hope and love and to be that presence. That's a real privilege and it is a joy for me. But I remember driving through Haken Krem not very long ago and it's a massive place if you've been up there. And it was one of those moments, I guess, where the Holy Spirit kind of just speaks to you. And as I drove through, looking at all these countless memorials and crosses and burial sites and plaques that were there for people, I was just struck that the whole place was full of crosses and memorials, fields full of dead people. And I wonder how many of them had been told about Jesus before they died. 
I wonder how many of them knew. We'll never know. That's between them and the Lord. But if they hadn't been told, I guess that's on us as church. That's maybe our fault because we get so busy because the church is too busy working out whether to have a 9.15 or a 10.30 service or what colour to paint the front door or should we use projectors or TV screens or whether we need to have coffee that should be a better flavour or maybe the sermon should be 40 minutes rather than 30 minutes and we can get caught up in all this stuff which is kind of, and I know you're hoping for a 15 minute sermon, we get caught up in all this stuff which is okay but is that what Jesus is really wanting us to be and to do and to become our main focus? Perhaps something more radical is being looked for, being required. And we need to remind ourselves that we exist for those who are not here, those who haven't yet started coming, those who are outside these walls and need to hear the, f- the promise that is found in Isaiah. And to see Jesus, to see the truth of who he is and God's mercy. And we have to be really honest, actually, in these days and say that the truth is, most of those people out there who need to hear the good news will not simply come to church. And if that's true, then the church needs to do what it was always supposed to do and what Jesus always did, which is go to them. A church anointed and ready to share the good news, longing to reach out to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to speak freedom to the captives, to rebuild and renew, to see miracles breaking out in people's lives, to renew what's being ruined by the enemy and the brokenness of this world. And if we're followers, truly followers of Jesus, then we need to follow Jesus and get our hands dirty partnering with him. This passage in Isaiah 61, the reason why I've shared so much about this is probably because perhaps this passage more than any other passage is what inspired me when I first got into ministry, that sense of purpose and call. Reading Isaiah 61 as a kind of um, a young adult thinking, this is, this is Jesus, I want to follow this radical Jesus, I want to do this stuff, Lord. And I have seen it, but sometimes we can get so tied up in busyness that we lose sight of the call of Jesus. We used to sing this song. Some of you are old here will remember it. It was a chorus, which, you know, at the time seemed really, really funky. We were down with the kids. Now it just seems really dated. But part of the words for this chorus went, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. And the chorus said, I want to give my life for something that will last forever. I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. And this generation now needs to hear the good news of God's purpose for them. So I want to finish with this thought. (coughs) There's a a road, some of you will have heard me share this before, there's a road called the (coughs) Alaskan Highway, it's the Alcan Highway it's called. It kind of goes right across Alaska. And it was an incredible road when it was first built, built during the Second World War to connect Alaska, Alaska to the rest of the U.S., goes through the British Columbia, the Yukon, and it's a really horrendous road and um, I think an awful journey. And at the beginning of this kind of track, there's a very famous sign that has been copied and you may have seen it elsewhere now, but it says this, this sign has been painted and shoved at the beginning of this road. Choose your rut carefully. 
you'll be in it for the next 200 miles. I just wonder sometimes whether the church has got itself in a rut that wasn't the rut that Christ intended us to get in. And we've got into this way of doing things and this way of being, which is okay. But it's quite hard to get out of it and needs radical, radical living. Maybe you feel like you're in a rut spiritually. I've got some really, really good news for you. You were not created to live and travel in a rut. Jesus created you for adventure. Jesus created you to be a world shaker, a world changer, in small things and in big things. He created you for his good purpose. He loves you. And he's going to give you everything you need to fulfill the call. Because it's not your strength, it's the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus was anointed, so he wants to anoint you with the Holy Spirit. So that you can do these things. We don't go to the poor in our own strength with simply good ideas and nice intent. We don't set captives free by simple words or our hard work. We don't see the blind receive their sight again by will of of kind of positive thinking. And we can't extend God's love by just simply being quite nice. It has to be a work of the Spirit, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then God does amazing things. Isaiah 35 verse 8 says this, You're not intended to be in a rut, but a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel in it, but it shall be for all God's people. So if Isaiah 61 is a manifesto of Jesus, a manifesto for ministry and for us, tonight I want to kind of renew my heart to say yes to Jesus, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, and to think, Lord, how do I become these things for people out there? How do we together do that? I think if we say yes to that, it affects three things. Our position, our posture, and our purpose. Our position, where has God placed you? As a mum on the school gate, as a friend uh, to neighbours, in the workplace, as a teacher, as a doctor, as a student on campus. Where's God placed you? Where has he put you? What position has he put you in? Or socially, where's he put you geographically or missionally? Who is he calling you to be Jesus to? What field has he put you in? You are not there by mistake. God has called you and God will give you everything that you need to sustain you, not just so you simply survive, but you experience his fullness of life. And so that those around you experience his fullness of life too. That's your position. What about your posture? Well, I've had a few back problems recently, and part of it, I'm sure, is, by, is caused by sitting badly on a chair or on the sofa or kind of being in meetings. Or Our posture is how we hold ourselves often, isn't it? You are an anointed child of God. If you're a Christian... You are the son or daughter of the king, and you have power and authority. The enemy trembles when you speak in your master and lord's father's name. And he wants you to stand ready for battle, not with your head held low, bowed, but with your chin up. Because you're remarkable, you're full of power, dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit, where we get that word dynamite in you. And he wants to prepare you for battle, not cowed and fearful, but with your shoulders back and your head up, ready, because he wants you to be able to stand. And after the battle has been fought, as Ephesians teaches us, 
that you'll still be standing. And you can do that because you're on a rock, which is Jesus, which is completely immovable. That's your posture. Son, daughter of the king, confident, not in you, but in him. And your purpose? Well, every single one of you has got a remarkable purpose. You're called to be a truth bearer in a world full of lies and deceit and confusion. You can speak truth, words of encouragement, words of hope, words of life. You're a light bringer. Everywhere you go, every dark corner you go into, don't believe the enemy who'll tell you that you're, you're rubbish. Every dark corner you go into, you bring light just simply by who you are because Jesus is in you. And he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. You might think, well, I'm just like one candle. Let me tell you, if you go into a dark room and you light a candle, it's not dark anymore. Darkness can never overcome light. Ever. No matter what the enemy might try and whisper in your ear. Light will always overcome darkness and you're a light bringer. You're an oil carrier. God's spirit is in you. So your purpose is to be you wherever God's called you. To speak, to love, to laugh, to serve, to listen, to care, to see miracles happen, to pray, to love Jesus in those times, to seek him. And you will shake and reshape the world around you. And together as church, our position, well, we're in Whitcomb, aren't we? But we're in the city, we're in the nation. We're called together to be a gateway, I believe, for this city. Our posture is we go as one. We're united. One church, one family. St. Tom's, St. Matt's, doesn't matter if it's the 8 a.m. BCP service or whether we have a swing from the chandeliers, charismatic worship set here. We're one family, one church. Our posture is one of prayer, worship, as a passionate bride of Jesus. And our purpose is not to gather and be nice. We're not supposed to be like a golf club, but slightly cheaper. We're called to be radical. I believe as church, God has called us to invade, to occupy, and to transform. To invade with God's love, to occupy with our presence in every dark corner of this city and beyond, and to bring transformation by being the people of God in those places. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men and women lay hold of it. I think that's Jesus' manifesto for the church and for you and me. Not to be pew fodder, but to be world changers. And that's something that I want to sign up to again and say, Lord, yeah, that's why I became a church leader. Not to fill in rotors. Not just just make services happen, but to be part of your people movement to transform this world. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray. I get the band to come back up. Jesus, we confess at times we lose sight of who we are and what we're for. The challenges and pressures of life can sometimes kind of refocus us away from you, Jesus. Or we get caught up in religion or institution, which has so shaped our thinking that we think what it means to be a Christian is to turn up to church.
Lord, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. So Jesus, will you shake us and help us to understand that you called us to be family. You called us to be the people of God, full of power, full of love, full of hope, full of the oil of your spirit to bring transformation to every corner of our city and beyond. In our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our places of study and our places of relaxation. To bring good news to the poor. To see the prisoners set free from captivity. To see the eyes of the blind opened so they can see the truth of the gospel. To see people healed spiritually and physically. That's what we long for, not just spiritual sight to be restored. But Lord, we've, Lord, we've seen in India people getting their sight back. I want to sit on the streets of Bath, Lord. I'm hungry for your kingdom to come to us and through us. And Lord, not just for us. We pray for our sisters and brothers up at St. Thomas. Lord, we pray for Whitcomb Baptist down the road meeting tonight. We pray for Vineyard in the Ring of Bells tonight. Lord, we pray for the church in the city, for Freedom, for Life Church, for All Saints Western, for the Methodists. For We pray for each corner of the city where your body is serving you and seeking to worship you and pray. May we be one as you are one, so that people may see as we love one another, that we're your disciples, Lord. And so in this great manifesto, Lord, we say, open our eyes and our hearts to say yes to you, Jesus. Yes to your call. And Lord, where there's fear, fear of kind of being called to stuff that we just aren't equipped for or ready for or don't fully understand, well, thank you, Lord, in your word that you say your perfect love casts out fear. So instead of being filled with fear, would you fill us with love and faith and dare to believe that however new or insignificant or weak or failing we may feel, that your grace is sufficient for us, that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And all you ask is for us to say yes to you, Jesus. And for anyone here tonight, maybe who doesn't even know you as Lord, who's not even sure where they're at with you, Lord, that invitation is constant and comes again now. As you called those first disciples, you simply say to them, follow me. And any heart that says that tonight, Jesus, you promise to forgive, to redeem, to restore, and to call them into friendship with the Father.